2008, the Big Ten Championship 600-meter run. This is Heather Dorenden. Uh, she's 400 meters into the run. It's just three laps around there. She falls on the 400-meter turn there. She falls, but that fall wasn't final. As you see with the excitement of the announcers here, she gets up. Not only does she get up from this run, but she wins this race. And I imagine that just for a moment, you would have to imagine that there was a glimmer of doubt. I mean, you would just have to imagine all of the training that goes into this lead-up of this championship run, that when she stumbles and when she falls, that there is a temptation to self-doubt, that there is a temptation to just throw in the towel and to say, there's no way that I can win this race, and that is the end. But for her, her fall wasn't final. And as we're walking through Genesis chapter 13, there, there is a question as we looked at God's word last week in Genesis chapter 12, as we're following through the story of Abram and Sarai, the question is, what happens after the fall? I mean, it was really a, a dramatic fall last week. We, we were just in the outset. They, they load up their U-Haul. They leave Ur. They're headed to Canaan. Everything seems to be following. God has promised not only land, but lineage and blessing through Abram and the descendants. They have a famine as they're in the center of God's will. The famine leads them to Egypt. There is Abram's fall. In that moment of of being backed into a corner, he says to his wife, tell them, not that you're my wife, not that I'm your husband, but tell them I'm your brother. She is taken captive into the princes of Pharaoh's palace there. Uh, land is threatened there in Egypt. Lineage is threatened there in Egypt, except for the but the Lord. God intervenes, even in the midst of, of Abram's faithless fall. Uh, God intervenes and he rescues his wife out of the, the clutches of Pharaoh's palace. And what we discover is, is what happens after that 400 meter fall, what happens with the rest of the story? Genesis chapter 13 Starting in verse 1, read, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. What do you do after your fall? What do you do after you fall? Because the, the question isn't, will you fall? But the question is, what will you do when you fall? Because as Paul tells us, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. As the anonymous writer of the book of Hebrews tells us, all of us know what it's like to, to wrestle with the sin that so easily entangles us. Maybe it's gossip, maybe it's gluttony, maybe it's pride, maybe it's prejudice, maybe it is anger, maybe it's envy, but all of us, 
All of us know what it is to fall. Some of our falls are private. Some of our falls are public. Some of our falls have severe familial consequences. Some of our falls have work consequences. Some of our falls never see the light of the day. But all of us know what it's like to fall. All of us are, live after the fall of Adam and Eve. And we know what it's like to be entangled in our own sin. So what do we do after our falls? Well, notice in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 13 that, that Abram sought the Lord in between Bethel and Ai. Notice the description here. He's rich. He's rich with livestock. He's rich with silver and gold that he receives from Pharaoh in exchange for his wife. He returns to Bethel and in between Bethel and Ai. And that should ring a bell. And notice how the writer of, uh, of Genesis tells us in verse 4 that he made an altar as he had at the first. Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, what we discover here is that in Genesis chapter 12, this is the place where he first worshiped the Lord. This is the place as he comes into the land and he begins to establish himself in Canaan that he makes an altar unto the Lord. And so after he falls, he goes back to the place where he first encountered him, first thanked God, and anew and afresh he worshiped him. I'm here to tell you that Satan wants you to believe nothing more. He wants to convince you that you cannot come into the presence of your Savior after your sin. He he wants to convince you that because of your fall, that you need to isolate yourself from the community of faith, that you need to isolate yourself in shame from prayer, that you need to wallow in your guilt, and you need to find your identity in your sin and not in your Savior. He, he wants to whisper, and then he, he moves from a whisper to a shout into your ear that says, God cannot love you because of what you have done, and that God's love is dependent upon your performance. That's what he wants you to believe after your fall. So it's not surprising that oftentimes people, after their falls, they might drop out of church, they might quit attending a life group, they might isolate themselves, quit praying, quit reading God's word. Why? You've been down that road. All of us have been down that road. And, And notice what Abram does here. He makes a beeline after the grace of God has captured him. He makes a beeline between Bethel and Ai to do what? To come to the altar of the Lord and to call upon the name of the Lord. And it's important for you to see that this is sort of a spiritual home base for Abram. I mean, it is a physical home base, but it is more than that. It is a spiritual home base where he does business with the Lord. And I don't know what that place is for you. But I do think that there is something about place. I do think that there is something that is significant about those regular holy places that are consecrated, not because it's a monastery or not because it is a place where no one's around, but there's something about that consistent place where you meet the Lord. And it very well may be it's a back porch at your house. 
It very well may be it, it is just your car on a commute to work and you consecrate that place, but it is a consistent place. It very well may be as you're walking in the morning that this is a spiritual home base that you just come to the Lord. Uh, for me, it, it is just that, that consistent being able to get up early in the morning and running in the morning, that that has consistently, literally for, for years and years, has been sort of a spiritual home base for me. And I want you to ask yourself, where is the between Bethel and Ai in your life? And it might be a couch, it might be a chair, it might be, again, your car. It it doesn't have to be a physical place. But for some of you, it is your home church. For some of you, it is a place, it is your town. And after the fall, it is important to, to go back to that place, not to isolate yourself and to find your identity and your sin, but rather to come back to that place where God has spoken to you and he's moved in your life and you recommit yourself and reconsecrate yourself before the Lord. What does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord? We don't know. If Abram sings at this point, we, we don't know if there's silence in this calling upon the Lord. We, we, don't, we don't know what he does because the scripture doesn't tell us clearly. But we do know from scripture what it means for us to seek the Lord. We, we call upon the name of the Lord as we seek the Lord in confession. I just remind you after your fall, after we fall, that First John tells us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to do what? To cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That a part of seeking the Lord is seeking him in confession. That if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you, that confession should be a regular and consistent part of your life. It it should be specific and consistent in your life and in my life. We we hear from church history that Martin Luther, the 16th century German reformer, every evening before he goes to bed, he would use the Ten Commandments as this Holy Spirit rubric that would look upon his life and he would confess, utilizing the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm not saying that that has to be your path, but confession should be specific and it should be consistent. Now, why do we do this? I love the way Frederick Buechner tells us about the importance of confession. He says, to confess your sin to God is not to tell him anything that he doesn't already know until you confess them, being your sins. However, they are the abyss between you and God. When you confess them, they become the bridge. That abyss is an abyss that, uh, that lacks a relationship. Rather, it is, it is a lack of fellowship. It is a lack of intimacy. So confession is the bridge to intimacy with our Heavenly Father after we fall. We seek the Lord in confession, and we seek the Lord, secondly, in repentance. Oftentimes, we, we think of confession, and we don't move to the difference between confession and repentance, but I would say these are two sides of the same coin of seeking the Lord, whether it's through song, whether it's through prayer, but repentance is that godly sorrow. It is understanding that a wrong has been committed and a Holy Spirit-empowered resolve to turn, metanoia, to turn away from sin and to turn anew and to turn afresh in obedience to God. So we're turning from sin and we're turning to God. Repentance is, is really extinct, the word 
becoming extinct in, in, in Christian cultures here, but understand that Jesus frames his entire ministry through the lens of repentance in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 32, we read, I have not come to call the righteous, but what sinners to repentance. And what does Abram do? If we use this story as as sort of a a framework, Abram illustrates repentance because what we discover in Genesis 13, 1 through 4 is, is that Abram leaves that place of compromise. He doesn't wallow in Egypt. What does he do? He gets out of Egypt. He turns around from the place of compromise and he says, I've got to go back to that place of worship and intimacy with God. So the altar of the Lord, for us, it starts with confession, but it culminates with repentance. Abram is leaving behind his Egypt, and so we are called in repentance to leave behind our Egypts. Now, repentance is a gift of God's grace. It's not just your effort. It's not just your work, but it is. it does require work. It requires your Uh, work, but it is empowered by the finished work of the gospel. It requires effort, but it is empowered by God's grace through the Holy Spirit. Now, I think we have some wrong impressions of repentance in the church. I think oftentimes we think repentance and we think instantaneous, complete transformation, complete change. But notice in this story, we don't don't get all of the details, but we can imagine it took a little bit of time for him to leave Egypt. Well, it takes a little bit of time for him to get Sarai out, and it takes a little bit of time for all of his possessions and his cattle and everything to actually get out of Egypt. And so we have wrong impressions of repentance when we think it's absolutely instantaneous. Oftentimes, we use the illustration of repentance as walking, and it's walking in the wrong direction. You realize you're walking in the wrong direction, and what do you do? You turn around. Well, if the illustration and the imagery is walking, that's very easy to do. You're walking in the wrong direction, and what do you do? You turn around. But if we change the metaphor, and you're driving down 65, and you realize that you are going in the wrong direction, well, you could slam on your brakes, and you could, in the middle of the interstate, make a U-turn, but you're not going to do that, because why? To turn around, you've got to go find an exit. You've got to go out of your way to get back on the right way. Now let's move that illustration just one notch up, not just walking here, but driving a car. Well, what if you're at the helm of an aircraft carrier? Well, to turn that around, you've got to know miles in advance that you've got to slow down And to make that U-turn, it is going to take a lot of time to turn that ship around. So some of you are loving people in your family that are traveling in the wrong direction. And you're asking God to bring in them a Holy Spirit-inspired repentance, and you're frustrated with the lack of instantaneous change in your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your uncle, your co-worker, whomever it might be. And so here you need to hear that it is as much God's grace in the life of your family member who goes from 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction down to 90 miles an hour. That takes as much of God's grace 
And we need to understand that oftentimes true repentance is a process that takes a long period of time. And the longer somebody has been driving in the wrong direction, the longer it will be for them to slow down, to find an exit, and to get back on the right path. And we need to understand that God is at work in that long process of repentance. What does it look like after we fall? But we seek the Lord in confession and we seek the Lord in repentance. But what else do we discover in this passage here this morning? What do you do after the fall? Well, you move forward refined by the experience. Look with me in Genesis 13, starting in verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. Why? For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. It's not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now notice what we have going on here. The land cannot contain the wealth of possessions that both Lot and Abram have. So in verse 7, there's strife, not between Abram and Lot, but between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. They're dealing with the limited water of the land. They're dealing with the limited grazing area of the land. And so you remember Abram in the previous chapter, when he's backed into a corner, he comes out of that corner with lies and he comes out of that corner selfish. There's a sinful selfishness that emerges. But notice here how Abram's been refined by the experience. We don't see that. Earlier, he profited off of his lies. So he barters and he gets sheep and oxen and donkeys and, and servants and cattle as he adds to what he brought out of Ur here. I think I just want to pause for a second. This is an interesting case study in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that we hear. So, so often what you hear is, is that blessing, blessing of possessions is, is a sign of faithful living. So if you're faithfully following God, then you will have a lot of things. Now, notice that when Abram is faithfully following God, it leads him to a place of famine. But when he is faithless, he prospers. So I think it's important for you to understand that abundance of wealth is never a sign of faithfulness. This is a really good reminder that your net worth is not a spiritual thermostat that shows if you are hot or cold in your relationship with God. And we have some inherent prejudices when it comes to possessions. There are times where you will hear somebody say something to this effect when they drive up in a very nice vehicle. You'll hear somebody say, and oftentimes it's in jest, they must be living right. And notice here that when Abram is not living right, he gets a lot of material possessions. And when he is living in God's will going into Canaan, he experiences famine. 
So you can be spiritually unhealthy with a whole lot, and you can be spiritually healthy with a very little. The inherited possessions become a burden for Abram and for Lot here. The land can't support both of them. So Abram does what? He takes the high road here. He says, you pick the lamb. Last chapter, he's backed into the corner. He picks the selfish uh, path, and here he is picking the selfless path. Now, notice what happens here in verse 10 of Genesis 13. Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord, notice parenthetically, the writer of Genesis says, this is before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Again, if you remember in the book of Genesis here, they go, Adam and Eve, east of the Garden of Eden. They, they go east here, so they, thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Notice what Abram's doing here. He's trusting God enough to take care of him. He's saying, I don't know exactly how this is going to work out, but I'm, I'm picking the high road here. Lot, you look out, and, and you look at whatever you want, and you pick left or you pick lot right, and this is going to come back to haunt Lot, and it is not going to take long. We'll just get one chapter in chapter 14 to see how this wasn't a wise decision. Then verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. And look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built, what does he do again? He builds an altar to the Lord. So notice how far we have come. In just Genesis chapter 12, we see Abram with his wife Sarah, and they're in Egypt. They're, they're so far away from God's promise of blessing and of land and of lineage. But, but the Lord intervenes in Abram's faithless living, and God has brought him back to the place that he says, guess what? Your sinful decision doesn't nullify my promise. Just because you've walked off the path doesn't mean that I don't have a plan to even redeem your selfless and, or selfish and sinful decision. So Lot makes a choice, and he chooses what looks best. Notice how this is going back. It, it harkens back to that original sin in the garden where, where Eve looks at the fruit and she sees that it is appealing. And so sin, so often, it appeals to our visual stimuli. It appeals, it, it looks good to us. It is a mirage, though. It is an illusion. It, it always looks good, but it is never truly feeling. And so Lot, he makes the decision based upon what he sees visually here. But the writer of Genesis tells us in verse 13 that the men of Sodom were wicked. Abram, he chooses generosity here. And again, God reinstates and he reemphasizes his blessing and his promise to give him the land. He says, Abram, look north, look east, look west, look south. I 
promise that this will be your descendants' land. Then he says again, you don't have children, but guess what? Your lineage is going to be far numerous than you can even begin to count. This is a beautiful story of God's grace in his servant's life Understanding that Abram's fall in the last chapter is not final. His story is not settled. And he seeks the Lord and he moves forward refined by the promises of God as he walks with his Lord here. You know, it's interesting. I think one of the temptations that all of us have, I don't know if you feel this temptation, but there is a temptation to Paul's people. Have you ever, have you ever felt that? Well, I hate it is really one of the pet peeves that I have. You, you will hear people that will have a conversation. They'll meet you, and they'll have a 30-minute conversation with you, and they'll say, oh, yeah, I, I, know, I, know, I know you. I know your type. You know that? Do you say that? I hope you don't say that. Don't say that around me, please. I don't like that. <laughs> you know, or, or, or you, you are a mother-in-law or a father-in-law, and, and you'll say something like this, my son-in-law is. And what happens is, is we have to make characterizations of our family members or our friends or our coworkers. And so what ends up happening is, is there is a story, there's a conversation, there is oftentimes a failure, oftentimes a fall. And it, we, we pause people with that narrative. And they become that. We, we pause them in that moment. My boss is, and we pause him. Maybe it's a, a story of generosity, but that story has encapsulated everything of who they are. Or maybe it's a story of failure, of betrayal, and that story of failure and betrayal has paused them, and they become that. Or maybe you say, my spouse is, my son is, my daughter is. We, we pause people. We pause people oftentimes in their worst moments. We, we pause people oftentimes in their worst mistakes. We pause people in those moments that none of us would want to have as the encapsulating story of our life. But I am here to tell you that while that might be your temptation, while that might be my temptation, it is not the temptation of the creator and sustainer of the universe. That, that God doesn't pause you in your worst moment, that God doesn't pause you in your worst thought, that God doesn't pause you in your worst action. Your failure, child of the Most High King, is never final in and through the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is good news. This is gospel news. That your failure doesn't have to be final. There is a pathway of confession and repentance in which you can move forward in the race that God has called you and has enabled you and is gifting you and empowering you to run even now. And you can run refined by the experiences of life, even refined by your failures. Confident in God's continued plan for your life. Thank him today because he's never tempted to pause you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, a word that speaks to our hearts.
pray for us that are in this room here that, that we have paused ourselves in our sin. That, that we have taken on ourselves shame and we've wallowed in guilt. We have finalized ourselves in our failure and we've been identified as a person who has survived this or done this or fell into this. But none of us in this room, none of us are our successes, nor are any of us in this room are our sinful moments. That in Christ, we are righteous, even in our unrighteousness. That in Christ, we are forgiven, even when we do not forgive ourselves. That in Christ, our failure is not final. That you invite us, empowered by the Holy Spirit, into a pathway of confession and repentance. And I pray for that person who has paused themselves and the journey of the Christian race. And they have fallen and they feel as if they do not want to get up, that they cannot get up. Whisper into their ears, my beloved, run the race. Don't settle for the ground. Your fall is not final. Get up, because I'm lifting you up. Let us sing as men and women who are forgiven. Let us sing as men and women who the race to run is before us, and our failures and our sin do not have to define us. Let us sing as children of the Most High King. It's in your name we pray.